Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Erica Slater, and today I'm joined by Megan Crow, Liz Lenevy, Amy Gunn, and Mary Simon. Welcome, ladies. Hello. So the past couple weeks, we've had several teams in trial, and we have some successes to share with you. I guess some wins and some ties. I don't know. Amy, how would you refer to your recent experience? A tragic day. (laughs) A tragic day. So I was recently in trial with very wonderful lawyers in Kansas City trying a, a product liability case. And we were in the second week of trial still in our case, but really close to being done with our case, when a juror asked to be seen by the judge. So anytime the jury is seated, and they meet in the jury room, they communicate with the bailiff if they need anything, they can go to lunch, obviously, they can talk to each other, but they always have to gather in the jury room and then be corralled, if you will, by the bailiff and brought into the courtroom and then escorted out and then escorted out of the jury room. So if they ever want to address the court, they just tell the bailiff, hey, I've got something to ask the judge. So this happened in the afternoon and juror came in and was expressing to the judge how a couple of other jurors were not taking the case seriously. And this was a very serious injury case. And that they were talking about the case to each other on breaks. Now, if anybody has been on jury duty, they hopefully remember that every time you are done for the day or even when you go on a 15-minute break, the judge admonishes the jury on a number of instructions. Don't talk about the case. Don't do research. Don't look anything up. Don't talk amongst yourselves. It goes on and on to the point where it becomes a very rote instruction. And judges sometimes will even be like, oh, the same instruction again, because it's just, it becomes very monotonous to listen to. But this jury was very concerned that there were other jurors who were not taking that instruction seriously. We had 12 jurors and two alternates. So she was concerned about, let's say, juror A and B. And the judge says to the lawyers after the first juror had been escorted back out, what do y'all want to do? No one knew what to say because it's a very unusual situation. And we decide to question jurors A and B about, about whether they were not following the judge's instruction. So that's like walking into the principal's office. Because the judge is on the bench. There, there were a lot of lawyers in this case. The court reporter is there. So juror A walks in and looks like a deer in the headlights and has to be questioned by the judge, not by us, the lawyers, by the judge about whether she's been talking about the case on breaks, which is against the rules. And she pretty much denies it. But in, in that discussion rats out juror C and juror C had done some internet research and not only that but had reported the results of the internet research back to the entire group so then we bring in juror B he also denies it the judge is concerned about their credibility and then juror C comes in and bless his heart he 
admits it, that he did this research on what really was a critical issue in the case, like a very substantive issue in the case, but didn't think that it was against the rules because he was doing that research on his own vehicle, not the subject vehicle, because it was a product liability case against a vehicle. And really, honestly, I think just didn't think he was breaking the rules, as evidenced by the fact that he came clean pretty quickly. But at that point, there were at least three people who had, by definition, not followed the rules. And we broadly refer to that as juror misconduct. And once the judge spoke the words juror misconduct on the record, it is, let's pretend we did get a verdict. This was point A on appeal, and it would have been reversed. And so the judge expressed that, which we all knew, that at this point, there was really no, we couldn't replace them. Even if we had a third alternate, replacing those three didn't really cure the fact that juror C had infected the whole group. So, y'all, it was poof. We were almost done with our case. So we'd shown our entire case. Now, look, we'd seen their opening. We'd seen their cross. So you can't get too upset about that. Is this a situation where you think we all know this kind of stuff happens all the time? It just not every jury has someone who tattles? Or where are you on how out of bounds this was? I'm afraid it does happen. The biggest problem was reporting it back to the group. Right. So we all, I think, live in a world where the Internet and your phone and the curiosity that abounds almost makes it impossible not to Google something. Right. The lawyer, the defendant. The, I think people are doing it despite the admonition, but they're not sharing it with the group. They're like, nobody's going to ever know I did this. Yeah. And I'm just going to file that away as a piece of information. Or they're spot talking to their... Uh, spouses or loved ones or whoever they're with that day. I really think it would be hard not to have, not to tell whoever you're having dinner with after a week of trial as a juror sure. what the case is about. Right. That's the first time that's ever happened to me. I had a mistrial a good many years ago. I was trying a med- medical malpractice case in a nearby county, and the defendant doctor on the stand started talking about the high price of medical malpractice insurance, which is not a thing (laughs) and had no relevance. And I still to this day believe that the lawyer put him up to it because they wanted a mistrial. And I was by myself, meaning I didn't have any other lawyers with me. I remember calling John asking about mistrial and he said, be careful what you ask for, because it, it sounded and the judge granted it. And that was devastating. That case settled right before it was retried. And in the case I'm speaking of from last week, the judge was very accommodating about getting us a new date. So we'll be able to try this case again before the end of the year. So I guess there's something to be said for that. I had the experience of a mistrial a while ago, and we actually got done with our case. Both sides, the entire thing, and the jury couldn't come to a an agreement. And it is like that weird poof feeling. As soon as the judge says the words mistrial, you just feel deflated. Yeah. And it's 
but it's interesting because even though it was not a it wasn't related to any sort of juror misconduct, we were in a position where it was so late in the night and the options that were given to the attorneys were really, do you want to tell them to just keep going or send them home and tell them to come back? But we don't want to do that because we know as soon as they leave the courthouse, everyone's going to get opinions from everyone who lives with them because that's just what they're going to do because they'd been in court all week. But it's it really is a very expensive focus group. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. just how I kept thinking about it. I think it's difficult for attorneys to deal with mistrials because it's kind of like in law school when you study for the final exam and then you get through the exam and it's done. That information is in and out and you have it completely memorized. And I just kept thinking in my head how much time I spent leading up to the trial memorizing. By the time you have a trial, you know, your exhibit, the pages on the exhibits that you want to call up and what it says and what the I it's just such a daunting feeling to know you can't do that brain dump. Yeah. Reintroduce all of it. And right. And then take the flash drive out and just plug it back in. Totally. Totally. But it, it was one of the same concerns, though, which was we have to do it the right way. We want it all done the right way. Courts follow the rules when it comes to juries and you have to give both sides the same amount of respect when it comes to decisions to be made about a juror potentially doing something that they shouldn't do. But it is wild. And it was surprising because I was in the case with my dad and I didn't know I'm six years. I think I'll be six years out this year. And I think he told me he'd only had that ever happen maybe once where a whole case will get done and the jury just can't come to a decision. Yeah, I have not had that. It is so it's just, you're so close. I know. Just, it's just, on. right. At some point, you're like, I don't even care anymore. They is right. I just want an A. Exactly. And you have to really, t- you have to really discipline yourself in that moment. And Amy, to your point with the juror misconduct, like, I feel like judges, they go off script quite a bit and I have to read the rule. But I, most trials I've been involved in, I recall the judge saying something like, and all the parties and all the attorneys have spent quite a lot of money to be here. And this is the only trial that will happen to try to impress a little bit upon jurors who, keep in mind, they got a summons. They're showing up. They didn't get to pick you. And it's an inconvenience for them. Then they're being thrust into this whole system that is probably very foreign. If they've been in court before, it may not have been a good experience. If it's not a foreign situation and but from this perspective, it's just you can't convey the blood, sweat, tears. And then on the other side of that, the very real dollar cost of something like a mistrial. And of course, the judge knows that and doesn't take that decision lightly No, to impress upon like there's this one rule to not talk about it, to not do research, to not bring in any outside opinions other than what has legally been allowed to be shown to you is one of the most important things. But like you said, who's going to sit there? Okay, now I'll tell on us a little bit. As we were talking about trial and tribulations, we were able to press a button real quick and make sure we understood the definition of tribulations in two seconds. And (laughs) And we couldn't even get through the conversation without Googling what's the exact definition. It's so easy. It's so common. Yeah. It's just an extension. But I would be remiss if I didn't remark about as hard as it it was on the lawyers, the clients, 
to have gotten so close to their day in court, so to speak, their justice, and then to have that extended yet again is just got to be devastating. And they are such wonderful people and have such a positive attitude that I was inspired by their reaction to this mistrial and was very humbled by that. So we'll get it done. I mean, we're going to get no it doubt. done. No doubt. And Amy, I know you said that they, the court was very willing to schedule you as soon as you can, but you still have to work with all the lawyers' schedules and the court schedule, and it's not as easy as, okay, come back next week at this time. And I can't help but thinking the most unfortunate part about a mistrial like the one that you had where it happens before the end of the complete close of the case is that it's a great strategic benefit, I think, to the defendants because I know you see their opening and their cross-examinations, but they essentially now have a a chance to think about, how did this witness respond to my cross-examination? Am I going to finesse it next time? What were the answers to the question? And we had daily transcripts. So it's the transcript is done. It's not as if in a regular trial where you have to order the transcript from a court reporter, we had a court reporter in every day doing dailies. So it's, there's no mystery in what the case is. But Megan, it's funny because we had the same judge. Yes, I had this judge next week, the week after. Yes, and I I will say one thing is we were worried we might go into the third week, which would have bumped you. I was actually in front of this judge for a separate case a few days before the start of the trial that I tried in front of him. And it was right after the, so he was, after the docket finished and we were all lingering around the courtroom just chatting and he was saying that he is going to be very forthright with the jurors next time and hey if you don't listen to this instruction this is what's going to happen yeah I figured uh, it was it's going to be a waste of time and he did certainly make the instruction in a strong word <laughs> worded sort of manner <laughs> I even remember in my last trial the jurors have like I have a an Apple Watch, and a lot of the jurors had Apple Watches on. And during jury selection, one of the panelists was sending a text or something, but the response came through out loud. And it was just like a normal, like, call you later or something. But in my head, I was thinking, even with that, if jurors are going to sit with the internet on their wrist, yeah, any one of them who has Siri or whatever hooked up to it can hear anything that happens, and can, the internet can automatically start generating information or response and saying it out loud. It just, it was crazy to me. And no one said anything about it. But for a second, I thought the court was going to instruct everyone that they can't have watches out that can pick up audio and then start generating information because that also would be terrible. Yeah. Could you imagine saying the name of a product and it's, here's what I found. (laughs) She called. Get that. Can you repeat that? (laughs) (laughs) Objection. Objection means, (laughs) my gosh. Yeah, I don't know. Every lawyer that I've talked to in the last week has asked about it, and I've told them about it, and I've said, what about you? And I think everybody I've talked to has had at least one mistrial experience in some way or the other. Either what you're describing, Mary, in terms of not being able to reach a conclusion, or a friend of mine tried, started a trial a couple of weeks ago and didn't have enough jurors So that's a mistrial if you can't even get enough jurors or like what I described, bad testimony. But unfortunately, it's out there. And I guess it happens from time to time. But I think two in my career, I'm going to I'm going to call that enough. Yeah, call that enough. Okay, then that means I'm halfway there. And I'm yeah, (laughs) great. A friend of mine got summoned for jury duty the day after your mistrial. She was sitting in the city of St. Louis 
um, juror room and she texted us on our group chat about she's oh I'm at my jury summons today and in all caps I responded don't text us anymore don't talk about this case don't tell us anything until you are either done with jury duty yeah. or you're if you get picked you're done with the case and she didn't get picked for this particular case but immediately after she got done what's the first thing she did she Googled the case. Yeah, of course. It was a high-profile murder case. And so the first thing she did was look it up and then immediately share it with all of us. And I yeah. said, you're off the you're off the jury, so it's fine now. But it just was a weird timing of it was the day after your mistrial. And I probably owe her an apology for, like, screen texting <laughs> at her. But I was like, this is these things matter. These things right. are really important. Yeah. And it makes me think of... You know, when we have our motions in limine, the defense, one of the defense motions in limine is always no golden rule argument. No, imagine you, we can't make the argument to the jury about imagine if you were the plaintiff or something like that. But I almost wonder if maybe the judge should say something like that. Imagine yeah. if you were one of these parties and the time and the effort, right. and the anxiety that comes with this. And then if you have someone else on the other end that could just blow everything up because they couldn't stop Googling or right. they yeah. stop talking about it or whatever. So last time Kristen, my wife, was called on a jury, same thing. Lawyers get none of the information because we're the ones like, don't you talk to me about it. And obviously I knew what courthouse Kristen was in. Literally five to seven minutes of research and I knew what case she was on, what other charges that person had, like what the whole rap sheet looked like. And at the end of the case, they convicted the guy and the judge said to the jury, you guys just need to know this may have seemed like a small piece, but you made the right decision and basically said they could get him on this one, but he's done some really bad stuff. And she comes home and can finally talk about the case. And she told me that. And I'm like, uh-huh. And let me fill in those details. Yeah. And <laughs> I already knew that. And they're thinking, they better put that guy behind bars. But they couldn't get him on that. But this one, they got him on. It was, it, it pains us, but it is such an important rule. To yeah. Up, but just don't tattle on yourself. I know that does. And again, I think that lends itself to the idea that he didn't think he was doing anything wrong because he shared it and thought that it was going to be useful in some way. It's like he thought he was within the bounds he did. of what he was able to do. He did. And the judge's jaw probably dropped. Excuse me? <laughs> How on earth did yeah, that research it was, that was... It was a hard thing to watch. Yeah, for sure. The only experience that I've had with... It, it wasn't a mistrial, but it was a potential mistrial situation. It was a couple cases ago I tried, and what, one of the witnesses said the word insurance or insure and prompted it was a tangential answer to not the specific question asked and immediately the de defense reaction is to jump up right. and scream mistrial and so that was an opportunity that i got to do a lot of research we took a 15 minute recess or whatever and yeah. furiously researched what the standard for mistrials is and um, in those sorts of situations it was it was pretty easily avoided because there has to be bad faith it had to be elicited and there's a really wide discretion for the judge in deciding that so in our case it turned out to be a non-issue pretty quickly but it was a very su scary situation I was yeah. so new in my practice and I was like oh my gosh it's terrifying 
So, Megan, let me ruin the punchline here. Tell us about your $1.265 million verdict with punitives. Woo! <laughs> yeah, this, so this was the really quick two-day trial that I referenced early, which was very exciting for me to be a part of. I certainly cannot take the majority of the credit. My partner, Johnny, did such a great job. But one thing that I did find really fun was getting to argue about the submission of punitive damages. As you mentioned, we got to ask for punitive damages. We put on a bifurcated trial. We got to put on a second portion of evidence. It wasn't my first time being allowed to submit on punitive damages, but it was the first time that I've been a part of a trial where the jury came back with a finding of liability for punitive damages. So it was my first time getting to experience the second part of trial, which is really fun. You peaked early. <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting. <laughs> Megan, could, would you mind filling us in on the facts of the case? Yes. Yeah, so it was motor vehicle collision case. It happened late at night. It was about 1130. Our client was going through an intersection at a green light completely proper. And the defendant was a young 16-year-old kid at the time, he was 18 during the time of our trial, which made him a very sympathetic defendant, which was a tough part of the case that we had to overcome. He was flying through the intersection. He was going at least, if not over double the speed limit in that area and flew through the red light without stepping on his brakes is what the evidence showed. And a T-boned our client, causing a pretty violent collision. His his vehicle actually overturned in the air completely. <laughs> and there was a, an eyewitness, there was one eyewitness who could testify as to the approximate speed of the vehicles. There was no other speed testimony in the case. The testimony from the defendant was pretty much, I don't know what happened, I blacked out. And... <laughs> okay. And, That's you know... Fascinating. I was able to drive straight. <laughs> Blacked well, out. It, it wasn't blacked out from drinking. One of the toughest parts of the case I mentioned was the age of the defendant. And another tough thing, adding to the sort of sympathetic figure of the defendant, was that he, when the collision happened, he was returning home from volunteering at church. Yeah. <laughs> and incredible outcome. Seriously, these facts are hard, I feel like. <laughs> it was. The optics were tough. You don't want to lose credibility with the jury by going too hard against this young kid. But the conduct was the conduct. And and the excuse was the excuse. And he had the evidence came out that he wasn't feeling well that day. He was very drowsy. The volunteer at church actually sent him home and offered to drive him home because she didn't think he looked well. So a perfect storm, but I think, and our client's injuries, they disputed causation on one of his shoulder injuries, but he had bilateral shoulder injuries, bilateral surgery, and a broken collarbone. And so the injuries were pretty clear from our perspective that they were attributed to the collision. Like I said, they disputed causation a little bit, but I really think that where we succeeded so well in this case was that it was basically a bat battle of the experts situation, and our expert really just looked so much more credible than theirs. And I think that had a huge outcome on the case. What kind of expert was it? Orthopedic surgeon. Okay. We both had orthopedic surgeons, and um, their expert really just got tore up on his credibility and his bias. And we showed, he called our client a liar, yeah. said he was yeah. a malingerer, said he was... On the stand? Essentially faking it, completely openly testifying about this. And 
the real kicker was there was a note sheet that he had made from before he conducted an an IME on our client that said, if he's complaining about these, I looked at the records, if he's complaining about these symptoms, he's lying, I'm going to look for cogwheeling and all the things that he said. And then he found those things that it said liar. (laughs) <laughs> not anything that they like try to say that says, oh, maybe your client was misrepresenting. Just came out and called him a liar. Yeah, it was not shielded in any sort of uncertain terms. And so we got that into evidence and also got into impeached him with other cases that he said the exact same oh. lines in. Just <laughs> really destroyed his credibility. And so I think that had a huge impact on the jury. You can't anticipate fully what a jury will think about your client, but you have to think about if you're going to paint any party in a certain way, you've got to think about the other ways that can be spun. Like when I hear you say, was coming home from church and 16, I think, oh, that's tough. But when I hear facts like wasn't feeling well and someone else offered to drive him home and his words are blacked out, I don't feel sympathetic. I don't feel the same sort of way that I do if you just would have ended at 16, came home from volunteering from church. I don't know. A lot of things you guys did so good at presenting it in a way that any sort of initial sympathy you'd feel from just hearing 16 year old church volunteer that I don't care anymore. Like the factors that that the weight that carries to me just went away with the rest of what you explained. Are you saying that the very facts that they're using to maybe support that he somehow did black out or something are the same facts that show he shouldn't have gotten in the car to drive? Correct. Okay, just making sure. Yeah, I'm working well today. I I don't. I mean, that's so true. It's just interesting. Some of the presentation I'm thinking in my head that wouldn't be something that I'd be advocating if I because it's not an excuse. Like, but. I'm sure that they wanted to have something to be able to make it very clear that this 16-year-old driving at 1130 at night who blows a stop sign at how many miles an hour, Megan? 80 to 90. Okay. Is not drinking. I mean, that that's all you need to tell me is that 16 or not, that's just where your head goes. So I'm sure that they had to have something to make it clear that, okay, don't hit us as if this guy was drinking. He's just, I don't know, not in the right mind, which isn't great. And I think one of the most important things that we said in closing arguments was pointing out that the jury instructions, instruction number one that the jury gets is about bias. And it says that you cannot consider age. And so in closing arguments, we made the point of, think about if the roles were reversed. If this 50-year-old man hit a 16 year old kid no one would feel bad or think twice about awarding him plenty of money but when the rules are reversed like this if that's where your hesitation comes in remember this rule you have to set that aside and that was a really good point or a really important thing for us to avoid ire on too we spent the majority of the time picking the jury asking if they could set aside age and trying to be really honest about that Megan, can I ask then, focusing on the punitive portion, because you got to argue this in front of the court, correct? Yes. Okay. Can you maybe give us a little bit of background on what that argument was and specifically what was your winning position? Yeah. The defendants did a motion for directed verdict on the issue of punitive damages, which we were expecting. So I got to 
spend some time researching before trial and getting my ducks in a row. But their argument was we knew essentially it was going to be this is a run-of-the-mill automobile case. In auto cases, no matter if they're speeding or doing something negligent, it's just ordinary negligence. And unless there's evidence of intoxication, punitive damages are not appropriate. And there is not a hard and fast rule in Missouri that you have to have intoxication. There just really has to be excessive speeding combined with other circumstances, other factors. Granted, most of the cases, almost all of the cases, have intoxication where punitive damages have been deemed appropriate. So my argument was that the evidence of him being drowsy and driving drowsy was akin completely to intoxication. Driving drowsy, we got him to the defendant to actually admit on the stand that driving drow- drowsy is dangerous. It impairs your motor skills, slows your reaction time. Those are all sorts of things that they're the exact same things that make drunk driving dangerous. So yeah, why wouldn't not impairment? Right. So why wouldn't those be sufficient here to raise the circumstances combined with the excessive speeding of over double the speed limit and completely running a stop sign without stepping on your brakes. So that the court found sufficient to submit. And he had noted if the evidence was that he was sent home because he didn't look well and knowing that he had to drive home and wasn't looking well, another supervisory person offered to drive him home. He's doubling down, right, to get in the car and drive. Yeah, absolutely. He was uh, the testimony from the witnesses was that he insisted he was fine to drive home. What happened after the accident? Did he receive medical care? Was there any diagnosis for him about being under the weather or ill or anything? That is a great question. He talked to the police first, told them he blacked out. He doesn't remember what happened. Then he talked to EMS, who is in charge of checking out his health, and they asked if he lost consciousness. And he said, no, I remember everything. So he sounds like the liar. (laughs) I'm seeing it. And that was definitely a huge issue for him on cross-examination was, why were you telling the people in charge of arresting you that you blacked out and don't know what happened and the people in charge of checking out your health that you didn't? So I would say normally the defendant's medical records would not be discoverable, much less admissible. If he's putting his physical condition at issue as his defense, is that how you got those records? They produced to us the EMS report Okay, from him. We asked for more of his medical records because if he blacked out and had a medical condition that caused him to do that, we would want to know that. Did he get checked out afterwards? Did he already follow up with a doctor? We asked for those medical records. We were met with an objection from the other side saying that they were not going to put his medical condition at issue. And so essentially the way that it shook down with these pretrial rulings and motions in limine is that he could say that he blacked out, but they were not allowed to assert that a medical condition of his contributed to cause that because they never produced his medical records to us. They were essentially precluded from that argument. Here's the other issue I'm thinking about is if he wants to argue it's a medical condition, have you gotten it fixed? 
Have you got treatment for it? Or or are you still driving? And within two minutes, just smoking people through intersections. Yeah. That that feels like that's a pretty big can of worms that the defense is opening up there. Yeah, absolutely. And that was explored in the deposition for sure, whether he had ever gotten that checked out, whether anything ever came of that. Has he had any other incidents? Met with no. So in our assessment, it was, okay. this kid really just didn't remember exactly what happened and then got locked into this excuse of I blacked out. It was really an interesting exercise in remaining open-minded about a case because when we first got this case in and I saw it was against a 16-year-old kid, I was like, no way. I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. That is, and then you get into the facts and you're like, wait a second. Yeah, he's a liar. This is not good yeah. for them. I don't <laughs> and know. I felt I, like, fine, great. I mean, at 16, right from wrong. And assuming he was aware of what was going on. He which panicked. He did, yeah. And we, if you're old enough to be given a license, you're old enough to know what the rules of the road are. And, man, I can forgive someone for maybe going 10, 15 over the speed limit, but double it? Oh, yeah. Double it. He knew what he one was of, doing. One of our jurors eloquently said, they're speeding, and then they're speeding. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. And one of those I do daily. <laughs> the other one, and ne- next time we have one of these cases, that's, that's the yeah. opening line, yeah. right? Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, they're speeding. <laughs> speeding. Oh, my gosh. I, there's only one choice. That's got to close it out. Ladies and gentlemen, there is speeding, and then there is speeding. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on he- another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Our episodes drop every Wednesday. And if you have questions for us or topic suggestions, email us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning. <laughs>